Welcome to Endless, the Sandman podcast from Chipperish Media. I'm story expert and Roger Bacon's mechanical head, Lonnie Diane Rich. And I'm writer, erstwhile DC Comics editor and raven of action, Elisa Quitney. Today on Endless, we're going to be talking about Chapter 1 of Season of Mists, Issue 22 from the Sandman comic book series. Sandman Issue 22 was written by Neil Gaiman, drawn by Kelly Jones and Malcolm Jones III, colored by Steve Olaf and lettered by Todd Klein. This issue was edited by Karen Berger, assisted by Tom Pyre, cover by Dave McKean. They were all agreed on one thing. This was as bad as it got. It couldn't get any worse. Time to wake up. We begin with a quick tour of hell, then pay a visit to Lucienne's library, where Lucienne is shelving new additions, and Matthew the Raven is doing his best Peter Laurie impersonation. Morpheus summons the pair to the Great Hall, where all the Dreaming's denizens are gathered. Dream gives a deeply felt, complete recital of his wrongdoing against Nada, followed by a vow to do whatever is necessary to rectify that wrong. He explains that he will be absent on a diplomatic mission to hell, and that if there is a repeat of the kind of renegade nightmare shenanigans that occurred last time he was absent, he would be most displeased. He makes it clear that this visit could end in his imprisonment, and that Lucifer is far stronger than he. In hell, two demons alert Lucifer that an envoy has arrived from the Dreaming. Any other emissary would have surely had their face eaten by the enthusiastic Mazikeen, but Cain, marked by God, is protected and conveys his message that the Dream King is on his way. Lucifer, who is embarrassed by Morpheus during his last visit, is pleased as punch that he will have the chance to destroy Dream. Dream pays two visits, one to Hippolyta Hall and her week-old son, gestated in dreams. Lyda, terrified and furious, tries to chase Dream away, but he touches the baby on his forehead like Samuel the prophet and tells her the baby's name is Daniel, God is my judge, in Hebrew. The second visit is to Hob for a drink, just in case, Dream says, he cannot make their usual appointment. In hell, Lucifer torments Cain with a hellish tour and gloats with anticipatory glee over his foe's demise. And then Cain returns and Sandman takes his leave of Cain and Lucienne, fully aware that he is taking a journey from which he is not likely to return. All right, Elisa, uh, here we are, Sandman, uh, Season of Mist, Chapter 1. We're getting into the story. But first, before we get started, I want to talk to our listeners a little bit. Um, Elisa and I are both in, like, times of, like, huge amounts of stuff going on. So I just wanted to remind you all that on occasion, an episode will not drop like last Tuesday. We just were not able to get together in time to do it. And so we just didn't drop the episode. So when a week skips, there's nothing wrong with your feed. It is that we just didn't get to it. But we are working to do this every week as we can. Sometimes we can't. So I just want you guys to be aware of that and to moderate your expectations accordingly. But actually, it's it's a really subtle plot because we are with this random reinforcement of reward, we're making you even more addicted. No, that's, I'm just kidding. <laughs> that is not our intent, but it is a nice side effect. <laughs> All right. So Elisa, Sandman Season of Mist, Chapter One, what's your overall response to this issue? I really love what this issue does and what this issue is, uh, because it really establishes the stakes for this journey, the emotional mm -hmm. stakes and also the life or deathness stakes. And it, it reminds us about why we should care. It's the bit that's left out of all modern disaster films. But if you go back to the 1970s, before all the action and mayhem, there's always, you know, we get to see, oh, look, the stewardess is having an affair and she really hopes that the pilot will leave his wife. Oh, look, the wife is drinking heavily and she's miserable because she suspects something is up and you start to care about everyone. And mm -hmm. this issue also kind of toggles between humor and, uh, and drama, which is a flavor I particularly love. But the cool thing, as you know, we'll talk about this more, is this, this was not necessarily Neil's master plan uh, mm -hmm. for, for how the pacing of this storyline would go. But it, I think it works really well. How, how about you? Um, I like it. This is a preparation for the journey story where we're on a quest and we're going through this like mythical, you know, progression, this hero's journey, where we start by preparing for the journey and anticipating what will come. And of course, 
course, Dream is going through to everybody being like, hey, just want to let you know, I might die. I might legit bite it doing this thing that I'm going to do. Um, but I love that it comes with, you know, this acknowledgement of the people that Dream feels important enough to to receive a goodbye, including Hippolyta Hall and her son, Daniel, which we will be talking about in a little more detail because I was very angry about that. I've kind of changed some of my feelings about that that situation. Um I like that he's preparing everybody for the eventuality that he might not come back. I love that he's like, no more bullshit shenanigans, seriously. Um, I like that, you know, he talks about um, about if he comes back, he might be in a different form and that you should, it's both him and not him because he's like, you should treat me and make it an easy adjustment. But also, you know, so he's preparing them for all of that. Um, but I also like the confessional. I like that he is sitting down in front of everybody and saying, this is where I done fucked up and I'm going to go make it right. And this is more important than this stuff that I do, which is hugely important. Um, and he goes to see these people acknowledging the importance of that friendship, acknowledging the importance of Daniel, the baby, acknowledging the importance of Hob. There is something ritualistic in this issue, in this preparation for the hero's journey. Um, and I'm really, I enjoy that element. I usually am like, all right, let's get going. Let's tell the story. Let's move. But I'm actually really enjoying this because what it does, you're right, it sets up the stakes. It sets up, you know, what this journey means and how incredibly important it is and how seriously Dream takes that he done fucked up, you know? Um, so yeah, all of this stuff, I'm really, really enjoying. I'm very excited to see where Season of Mist goes. So as you're you're saying this, I'm, mm -hmm. I'm realizing that this story works two ways because it's the beginning of a storyline. But in terms mm -hmm. of the overall arc of the Sandman, we're not at the beginning, beginning. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. I had these associations that what he does is similar to what in Romance Landia is called the grovel. Maybe I don't know. Can, <laughs> can you describe the grovel for our listeners who might not be, you know, familiar with romance terms? Yes, uh, the grovel is a trope. Um, and a trope is basically just a repeated, you know, writing device, storytelling element. Um, and people go back to tropes for a reason. Tropes in and of themselves are not bad. Um, I explain all of that in my book, How Story Works. So go grab that if you want to learn more about stories. But um, basically what the trope is, the grovel trope is uh, somebody does something terrible that it causes usually the in the second act, this dissolution of the relationship, they break up. And then and the person who did the terrible thing realizes that they did a terrible thing, realizes what they have done and goes back to the offended party and begs and begs for them to take them back. I know what I did wrong. I am so, so sorry. And they beg for them to take them back. It's, it's a begging for forgiveness. But usually in romance, the grovel is not just about forgiveness and please forgive me and I'll go about my business and leave you alone because I still don't deserve you. The romance grovel is about please forgive me and take me back because I cannot live without you. Um, and it has, I would say, probably like a 30% success rate as far as how it plays for readers. Um, but a forgiveness grovel, you know, um, I think is is probably a little more effective than a forgive me and take me back into your bed, please now grovel. Because the forgiveness grovel is I am going to lower myself and try to make things right because I know I did wrong and I don't deserve you. And the please take me back in your bed grovel has some selfish overtones that don't really feed into the proof of love that you need in a good romance story. Oh, but I mean, yes, yes. I also think like Tessa Bailey does a good mm -hmm. grovel and it's usually followed mm -hmm. by um, either the hero or the heroine taking lots of actions to, you know, to show this contrition. And mm -hmm. I, I've just been thinking in two ways that this works. One is that we once again are having a lot of sympathy and empathy with Morpheus Instead of him being yes. autocratic and kind of assholeish, mm -hmm. suddenly we're we're feeling for him and the risks he's taking. But it also sets him up nicely so that you don't just hate him as he goes to redress this right. this wrong with Nada. Because if we hadn't had this issue, you know, it's sort of des desire told Morpheus that 
he'd been an asshole. And then he was defensive. And when death said, no, desire has a point, it's still, it was still an external motivator. This is where he kind Mm -hmm. of really owns it and says, I, you know, this was my doing. This is my, he, you know, he, he's digested that criticism. Which is very important. And the confessional going in front of everybody, God and everybody and saying, I done fucked up. Murph Pumpkin That's a big deal. Especially, especially for somebody like like Dream. Um, But before we get too deep into the story elements of uh, chapter one, um, let's go ahead and discuss the cover art. Um, Once again, here we are celebrating. This is our our moment of McKean that we have every week um, because the, the artwork is always so deep and there's so much there um and it's really really fun to kind of like i honestly spent probably as much time diving down this cover rabbit hole that i'm going to go into in a minute um as i did with everything else this week in the in the um in the show notes um but anyway so from dave mckean's dust covers he said i forget why nada was on the cover of this chapter probably because she wasn't inside so that identifies the face that's on the cover which is this uh this image of a face very tight within the square. As a matter of fact, the square like cuts off the top of the head a little bit. Um, We've got purplish red hues, which are reminiscent of bruises, right? Which is like what's left over after something offensive has occurred, right? Um, Her eyes are blank and white, no pupils, no irises, nothing, just this blank um, stare. Um, And the the purple uh, square itself is inset on old yellowed paper, with German text art all over the place. Now, before I go in to my crazy rabbit hole that I <laughs> fell down this morning, let's go ahead and talk about this cover a little bit. How do you feel about this cover? What did you? What did it evoke for you? You know, I think it evokes a feeling of of someone haunted and a bit lost. And mm-hmm. if it weren't for the cover, uh, and I, I have to say that I. I I think I didn't take as long as you did this time in looking at the cover and I wasn't <laughs> completely sure who it was, you know, but that mm-hmm. haunted loss. Now that I'm knowing that it's Nada, I feel that it really brings her out of just being an object of a quest, just a, a grail yeah. that doesn't really signify and it, it grants her mm-hmm. more personhood. And it reminds me that when it comes to modern art and contemporary art, we often have to supply some of that context that it's, you know, the, mm-hmm. it enriches it when you are able to to dig deeper and to know these things. I used to, you know, go to museums and say, you know, oh, well, I don't really know how to look at modern art or contemporary art. Mm -hmm. And I think it was only in the past five years that it occurred to me, well, this is not a permanent condition. I can always de-ignorantify myself. And, (laughs) And I, you know, and I discovered that abstraction, I think we talked about this way earlier, that abstraction was partially a response to the world wars, to World War I, Mm -hmm. to World War II, and the use of, of, nuclear weapons and mutually assured destruction. And it was a way of saying that that innocent way of looking at the world is no longer enough to convey the fracturing and the loss. And so Mm -hmm. I I guess that there's a part of me that's thinking that that is part of what this abstraction might be about. But I am most excited to hear about your deep dive, because before we sat down to record, you said to me, Alisa, I've gone on a very deep dive. And I have to say that deep dives of research are just my favorite thing. So it's so delightful and such a fun experience. Well, okay, I was looking at this cover, right? And the thing is that we've got Nada, you know, inside this this purplish red box, right? And and so constricted, like her whole face can't even fit in it. So there's that sense of claustrophobia. But there's also all this text, like old, you know, medieval looking, you know, calligraphic, I guess is a word, um text. And I was like, "Huh, I wonder what that text is from, you know? So anyway, my first stop 
was to just do a quick Google search on the Sandman cover for this and be like, some fan somewhere has figured this out and it'll be two seconds and then I'll be able to draw on all of their hard work and get it. So I did a search and I was shocked. I have literally never found myself in a position where I'm the first person to ask a question. Oh, I just need to say, you're like that kid that goes strolling down the beach and finds like, you know, a complete, you know, buried city or dinosaur or something. <laughs> Well, I have to say, as soon as I found out that nobody on the internet had answered this question, I was like, well, I have to figure it out. So I started looking at the words. But the thing is that like, I couldn't see them clearly enough. So I took a picture. I have the dust covers book. So I took my camera, I took a picture. And then within my photo app, I blew it up. So I could try to read all these words. And they were I know, just enough about German, like seriously, just enough. You know, uh, it's basically Gesundheit, and that's it. Uh, to to figure out that it was German, right? Wait a second. Um, so Knowing it, Gesundheit is enough German to figure out that this is German. I love it. I guess. I mean, like basically, really, when I think about it, Gesundheit is basically the only German word I know. Um, and it's funny because I come from like German stock, so like, yeah, it's 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 nuts. I don't know anything in German. Um, so anyway, I started like trying to pull out the words that I could read, but I mean, between the fact that a I don't know German and b I don't know how to read, you know, medieval calligraphy, which is you know what this is. Um, I pulled out a couple of words that I thought might be a thing. I put them into Google Translate. I'm like, oh this means, I guess, horse or something or whatever. Um, and then I put those few words in and it led me to Chaucer's The Reeves Tale, but that wasn't it. It was a dead end. And I was like, oh no. And then I found it and I am going to, okay, anybody out there who knows German, here's what I want. I will put this in the show notes and then I want you to like, um, like read this for me in actual German. Um, because the way I'm going to say it is going to be completely unknowable. The, the source is Die Gurlichten und Einstels der Gerschichten des Lobbiken, Streitbarten und Hackberunden Helds und Ritters Tornax. Don't, don't take this the in wrong English. way, but th that yeah. is a really bad Truly German terrible. accent. <laughs> oh, I wasn't even trying for a German accent. That is a lady from New York State trying to read German very, very terribly. That was horrible and offensive to anybody who knows German. Um, and I apologize. Um, but what it what it basically translates to, as far as I can tell, is the secrets and part of the stories of the commendable and highly acclaimed hero and knight Turandox by the Holy Roman Emperor Maximilian I, printed in 1517. The noble Turandox, this is what, okay, this is the mix of my Google Translate skills and the words that I could not figure out that were I think, in German. Wait, let me, let so, me just, let me just, I think it's... What do you have? I just think that the C-K-H thing is, ugh, like, Tour de Nachs. You got it. Yeah, yeah, probably. Probably. Yeah. No, I'm, I'm, I'm very bad at this. See, there's a point <laughs> where I'm not sure. I think, like, for me, usually, I will err on the side of of doing it wrong because it's more genuine to reflect my actual ignorance than try to do something that I have absolutely no idea how to do. So I do apologize to anybody who's offended by that. There's no way <laughs> no, but an attempt. It is an attempt to acknowledge and own my own. I am way out of my, my But I think now. whenever you've got um, a CH and a bunch of things, you can. <sighs> okay, I can just clear my throat yeah. on it. It'll mm -hmm. be fine. All right. The the noble Torndach guts fine effin on a mediocre plate and alone, blah, 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 something fine, live, white. That was all I could get. Couldn't get anything else, but it led me to Sotheby's that has a, a copy of this on sale for about 43,000 pounds or thereabouts. And here is the description. This is one of three works commissioned from the leading artists and scholars of the time by the Emperor Maximilian to glorify himself and his reign. The story tells of the Thordank which is now that I've, I've got an English like expression of the name, the third angst trials on his journey to claim his bride representing Maximilian's marriage to Mary of Burgundy, by which the Habsburgs came into possession of the rich lands of Burgundy. The first edition was issued in probably 300 paper copies and around 40 copies on vellum for distribution by the emperor. And not all of these contain the clavis or key to the illustrations. They've got all the details and information really, really interesting, but I did not stop there. Oh no, I did not. The description, 
caption had the English spelling of the name. And when I searched on that, I discovered it's Maximilian's story, although it is said to be fictional and it, probably a lot of it is fictional. And Tourdank roughly translated or Tourdank, whatever, um, roughly translated is Noble Knight. So Wikipedia says it is the story of the noble knight who goes out to rescue Princess Ehrenreich, which is Mary of Burgundy, but must go on a crusade before he can marry her. So seems on theme, which makes me think that Dave McKean deliberately chose this obscure medieval text about a noble knight going to save a princess. Um that that's why he decided to use it um, on the cover. And I find that fascinating. I still have not found a like a literal translation of the section of text on the cover that I was like where he's he uses a mediocre plate for something like I haven't been able to figure out like find that I was I was interrupted by the fact that the time came for us to actually record this thing but it was so fun doing this and I am dying to ask Dave McKean about this about like was this deliberate how did you know about this medieval text like where did you encounter it and what made you think about using it here to kind of uh, use it as an analogy for dream going to save uh, nada i have a million questions i you know and i just want to say that we we just are going to have to assume you know you know when you're in a relationship with someone for a long time mm -hmm. friendship romance whatever and you're like hey remember that time and they look at you blankly and then there comes that moment <laughs> when they say yes I think I do. And, you yeah. know, so it's it's possible, of course, that this has been lost to the season of mists. <laughs> <laughs> and mellow fruitfulness. Yes. And, I, you know, I forgot to say also that Neil had, had said in a couple of places that he always misremembered that quote mm -hmm. as uh, of a season of mellow fearfulness. Um, oh. And so I think sometimes, of course, there's the value of, of misremembering. But yes, I'm dying. We mm -hmm. we must talk. I did have a conversation with Dave. Uh, so mm -hmm. I can I can bring little insights. I, maybe I'll save some of that for Lucien's library section. Yes. Mm -hmm. But I want to say that your deep dive has already made this now one of my favorite episodes <laughs> to, to do with you because that's so cool. I love it was so fun to find it. When I found it, I felt such this like victory. And that's the fun of research. You know, it's like you find these little things and it really opens up a whole space for you. Yeah, I know. And, and the fact that you found it like the kid on the beach. Hey, what's this sticking up under my toe? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> but um, but let's let's also talk about the interior art a little because oh I found God, some yes. cool mm -hmm. stuff about that. Um, mm -hmm. So, you know, when Kelly... Jones, who's who's uh, the illustrator here, is going to town mm -hmm. on all of these uh, denizens of hell. I, denizens of mm -hmm. hell just because I don't know. Do you say denizens of anywhere else? It's always denizens of hell. No, pretty much just hell. Yeah. So, well, anyway, he in the in the script notes, Neil mm -hmm. had some very specific uh, suggestions. One was he said to look at Joel Peter Whitkin's book of of artistic photography gods of earth and heaven um mm -hmm. and uh let's see and i think now i think that one of them was the invention of milk and amour and there were some others so some of those monsters and monstrous uh critters that we see beginning were inspired by this book of both beautiful and um and freakish uh mm -hmm. that's probably not the right word to use anymore but i think it was sort of embracing and playing with the whole idea of monstrosity and eroticism yeah. mm -hmm. and venturing mm -hmm. into the realms of taboo uh so that's uh that's one of the the things that i thought was very cool mm -hmm. there is so much specificity in the in the art descriptions. And I, I thought it was really interesting. Uh, one of the comments that Neil made is that, you know, he had really liked how Chris Pachalo's interpretation of the Sandman's helm had uh, mm -hmm. had a bonier, more vertebrae look. And it's if you look mm -hmm. at the evolution of the Sandman's helm in the series, it starts out being more gas masky, gas mm -hmm. mask adjacent, and becomes yeah. more and more 
vertibris. Uh, I don't know. Yeah, and it kind of has a feel like those medieval um, plague masks, doctors' masks. Yes, the plague masks. It's half plague Mm -hmm. mask, half you know, alien creature that's attached to your face. Yeah, Um, yeah. (laughs) And and I think that he really wanted Kelly to push it even further in that direction, Mm -hmm. and clearly, Kelly has. Um, And another. Uh, thing that Kelly pointed out in his notes in High Bender's book is that he deliberately, because this is a very still and talky issue, so he mm-hmm. really is drawing Sandman's cape as if it's alive, and its ripples and furls yeah. are meant to evoke his interior emotion. So his, it's like mm-hmm. we all have a tell, and so the way Kelly has drawn Sandman, his cloak is his tell which I think is very cool. Mm-hmm. Oh, God, I love that. Yeah. Um, the artwork in this was kind of astounding uh, to me. The, when, you know, every every week we pick our favorite page and I struggled, you know, because there were so many different things that were done in... And and the thing is, is that it's it's all different kinds of styles, but every page had such harmony. And that's one of the things that I really love about the way comic books are done is that there's there's the panels and everything, but there's always a consciousness of how each of those panels plays in the page in the moment of story that is happening and how they all work together. So a panel may be a panel or whatever, but it's it's part of this page. It's part of this whole, you know, movement of story. And it's such a unique expression of story that I think only happens. I mean, you know, film and TV are visual media, but they work differently. There's something about the ways in which the art has its own visual harmony and the way it has its own kineticism as it moves through the story itself. It does feel the art in this story feels to me like dream moving through people's dreams, you know, to get somewhere. And it's just, it's such an incredibly effective and and wonderfully evocative expression of this story. And I just absolutely love it. Um, but one of the things, of course, that we love is Lucienne's library, you know, and all of these stories that were dreamed, but not written, and they end up being kept in... His library in a section of his library. He also has the real books, the books that were published and experienced by everybody. But he has all the dreams too, and um, and I see in our notes here that you have a couple of of entries for Lucien's library. Well, yeah, so I love the fact that you know in the script, Neil does, and I you know I forgot to actually compare the art to the script to see how many were were illustrated, and, but I think yeah. Lord Dunsany and. Um, Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, I'm suddenly spacing on Sherlock Holmes, uh, Conan Doyle, Conan, Conan, Arthur Conan, Arthur Doyle. Conan Doyle. Um, and, uh, oh God, there were, there were a bunch of other titles mm-hmm. and then these wonderful, I, I think there was another Lovecraft, you know, Cthulhu, yeah. you know, son of Cthulhu, not son of Cthulhu, but it was like Cthulhu's holiday or yes. something like that. It was something springtime yes, for lovely. Cthulhu. Um, yeah, springtime for Cthulhu. <laughs> so... <laughs> I was thinking, okay, let's let me think, and um, and we had talked a bit about like what titles mm-hmm. would you add. So my father uh, went mm-hmm. to a, a science fiction convention. My father's the was the science fiction writer Robert Checkley. Uh, mm-hmm. So he went to this big science fiction convention in '68, and he was carrying a portable typewriter and his manuscript to what was according to him and my mom it was sort of they, they he thought it was the best book he ever wrote it was a little leaving mm-hmm. straight science fiction more into maybe Kurt Vonnegut territory of literary science fiction oh, yeah. and it was called Lata and mm-hmm. the, the typewriter was stolen and along with it the only copy of the book oh so I thought okay Lata by Robert Sheckley oh god Um, Then there's Olivia Goldsmith, who people know she was a romantic, I would say, social satirist. Uh, She Mm -hmm. did, you know, a lot of Revenge of the First Wives kind of books. And (laughs) and all her characters, you know, played around with plastic surgery. But unfortunately, Mm -hmm. she died at 54. Um, So I think her... Didn't she die while getting plastic surgery? Wasn't that the story with Olivia? Exactly. So I want her Mm -hmm. book, Revenge of the Wrinkled Ladies. 
Aww. And um, and finally, my my uh, thought was, you know, uh, Mark Twain famously said about Jane Austen that if she weren't already mm-hmm. dead, it'd be necessary to club her with her own shin bone until she was dead. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> and so I thought Austen and Twain, a love story by Nora Ephron, like the, the movie oh she God. never made. I would be so into that. That sounds wonderful. The only one I came up with was uh, Reader I Left Him by Charlotte Bronte, because uh, Rochester is nuts. And uh, yeah, Jane Eyre is a mess. It's just like, I mean, it's it's a classic piece of literature. And as literature, it is very interesting as a romantic story. Kind of scary. So anyway, yeah, I would like to see that story when she wakes up and just goes elsewhere. Um, But uh, another thing with getting back to Sandman uh, Season of Mist, Chapter One, Um, actually, I have I have changed my mind a little bit as we go through this story. Um, When when Dream said to Hippolyta Hall that this is my baby and I will be back to take him. Um, I, I was personally like, oh, bite my ass. I was very much with, uh, with Lita on that. Um, but when he goes back to see her now and to say goodbye to the baby and to say goodbye to her, um, he's no, he's not really, I, I would say a lot more gentle with her. He's like, I'm here. Let's just deal with it. Like you can be upset or whatever, but I'm not concerned with how you feel about this, you know. But at the same time, it felt to me like I understood, you know, because he was talking about how this child was, you know, gestated in dreams, right? And that his sense of responsibility toward this child um, is is about the fact that this is a kid that was was conceived in dreams, conceived in the dreaming. And so he has a responsibility for this kid and this kid is going to need him. And so I felt to, it felt more to me like less like he was like, I'm going to take your son away because I've decided this kid is mine. And more of I have a responsibility to this kid and I am failing in my ability to explain that to you. Um, so he's still screwing up. He's still being a jerk, but like, I understand that relationship a little bit more in that he cannot just let this kid, you know, with roam free without the guidance that this child will probably need because there is going to be something special about this kid. I, I think you're right. And I think there's this, for me, having gone to a traditional Hebrew school, there's this very strong mm-hmm. resonance with the story of the prophet Samuel. So um, Samuel's in fairy tales and in the Bible, all the wonderful heroes uh, are mm-hmm. not born out, out of a typical pregnancy. So either the uh-huh. mother has trouble getting pregnant. Often it's just the mother can't get pregnant. So you think about Snow White and um, mm-hmm. Thumbelina and that whole idea of somebody who wants a baby, but can't through the normal course of things have a baby. And so magic has to intervene. And, mm-hmm. um, and so, uh, Samuel's mother, this, this feels a little, uh, off the course here, but Samuel's mother is crying and upset. The high priest thinks she's drunk and she explains she really mm-hmm. wants a baby. And he says, go, you will have a baby, but you have to bring him to be raised in the high priest's house. Um, and, you know, and I think about that whole idea that, mm-hmm. um, as a kid, I think I interpreted he was just being an asshole, but yeah. I seem to have said the word asshole so many times during this pot. I have to stop. I have to find another word. But now I think it's one of my favorite words. I say go for it. But if you feel like you want to, you know, well, I just it, feel we're totally impugning, you know, the, the, the highly functional and important body part that it is. Um, <laughs> but <laughs> anyway, I, mm-hmm. uh, yeah, so I think that there's a point that you're you're looking at where it's not necessarily that this being is in power and saying this is my choice it's more i am articulating for you something that exists and is a fact yes and i mm-hmm. have to, you know and i'm bringing it to your awareness not choosing it and this now that i'm saying that out loud there's so much about choice in this issue 
There is a lot about choice in this issue, but back to quickly your your story. Um, you know, you're not going too far off the beaten path when you bring in the stories of the world and of people, right? Because everything that Gaiman does, again, is pulled through the centuries. Like every part of the pig, like he goes in and not just the comic book pig. Yeah, can't like, talk about the pig when we're talking about the Old Testament. There we go. Every part of the goat. I apologize. Every part of the goat. Okay, we'll, we'll, we can do that now. But when you're doing work with with something like this, with stories like this that pull from mythology and, and, you know, stories and places, I think that everything then that comes deeply from the stories that we pass from generation to generation, these stories that have become basically the core of our spiritual existence, whether or not we are religious, they are the core of our spiritual existence. Um, I, I don't think there's anything that's irrelevant. And I love that you bring that perspective into these stories, because those are old stories that really do have deep, deep meaning. Um, and I think that they absolutely apply to everything that we talk about here. So please, I would love to encourage you to bring those stories in whenever you've got them, because I, I love, love going off on those kinds of tangents. Um, but one of the things, of course, that I want to talk about with regard to this is something that I talk about on Listen Up A-Holes, which was the Marvel uh, podcast that I did with the uh, superhero scholar Joshua Unruh. Um, one of the things that I, I learned is that our superhero stories uh, tend to be very much about identity, right? You've got Tony Stark and you've got Iron Man. You've got these two identities and you're trying to figure out where they merge, what they are, and who is he when he is each of those things. I think that there is um, there is a huge uh, um, I, I don't want to say obsession, but I, or like fascination with identity within like the superhero genre, which is a lot of where comics started out in this like superhero space where we're talking about identity. And what I find really interesting is that even as we move over into this more fantastical horror type uh, space in these comics, we're still having a lot of identity stories, which I think are really interesting. We have this moment with Lucien where he says, I am the keeper of the library. Matthew, without it, I am nothing. Were it to be destroyed again, it would destroy me as well, right? So we have this sense from Lucien that if that there's something at stake, not just for dream, you know, but for him as well, that that if things go bad, if wild shenanigans should happen in Morpheus's absence, um, there's a real risk for Lucian, not just of losing his livelihood and his work, but his own existence, his own identity. Um, and there is this sense of the the sloughing off of identity and how that transforms and yet doesn't transform. We have from Dream where he's talking about going to, to hell. If I am destroyed, another aspect of dream will fill my shoes. So he's talking about another aspect of dream as though it's not him. But then he says right immediately afterwards, I trust you all will make my reassumption of the role an easy one. So it is both him and not him. It is Doctor Who, right? It's Doctor Dream, you know? Um, he is himself and yet not himself. He is himself and yet a um, a, a, a transformed version where he has some of the same essential things, but is is something new, is something else. Um, I also find it really interesting that we've gotten to the endless can die, but they can't, but it appears they can die, but they can't end. And what does that mean, right? Um, and you think, is that how Delight became Delirium? Did she die, you know? And death as a concept of transformation is a very old idea uh, and present in the death card in the tarot. Um, uh, the death card of the tarot does not mean you're about to get hit by a bus. Um, it means that, that things are about no, to No, that's the that's, tower. That's a huge transformative thing. That's the, <laughs> oh, the tower is the metaphor. We got to have a whole tarot conversation, I'm telling you. Um, I don't know if that's true. I, 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 it's been a long time since I dabbled in tarot. Oh, I've got a whole thing with the tower. We will talk. We will talk. I wrote an entire book about the what it means to be towered as in that concept with the uh, with the tarot. It's really, really fun. Um, but anyway, so when the new dream comes in, the, will they be an evolution of dream? Changing the very nature of the dreaming? Like what would happen? I presume we never find out. But I think it's an interesting question. And by having Dream presenting this hypothetical about how things may be if he does not come back, um, it does, it gives us a little more of that world building. Yeah, you know, I, 
I think that, well, I react to this in a different way now than I did years mm -hmm. ago, because now I see that over time, you really do change. And I think whatever the mm -hmm. incar incarnation of Elisa that was, you know, assistant editor and later editor at DC in, you know, my 20s and 30s is both me and not me. Yeah, absolutely. It is both you and not you. And if you think about that, like, you know, I think about my kids and like the toddler that was my daughter, you know, who is now in college and going off and doing her own thing. Um, that toddler does not exist, but my daughter does. So what is it that makes the essence of my daughter? What is it that makes the essence of that toddler? How is the same essence of a person so completely transformed? Um, and that is a death process. And we have all been through that death process multiple times in our lives. Um, and it's, it's just, uh, it's always a really interesting idea to me. And so to bring that into Dream's personal identity story as he moves through this, that even if he comes back as Dream, as Morpheus, I believe that in this process, even if he survives and isn't taken away and is, doesn't have to come back in a new type of Dream, that he will essentially be transformed, that this is a death story for him, that he is going into the other world and going through that death process and being transformed by it. That is my expectation of Season of Mist. Have not read it yet. Am very excited. Um, the last identity story that we have here, a little bit of identity story, is with Cain. Um, he comes in and Lucifer immediately identifies him as the first man born of woman, protected from death by the only being more powerful than Lucifer, which is, you know, God, right? Um, but not forbidden to commit murder over and over and over again. Because let's not forget, when I first read this, I was reading Cain as Abel because he was afraid and because he was cowering and because he was in the position that Abel usually is, right? And Abel is in that position because of Cain. Cain is a murderous son of a bitch. But he comes in here, he's in hell, he's scared, and the abuser becomes the abused and immediately breaks down. Not to mention the fact that nobody touched him. Like, I mean, aside from the fact that, like, you know, Lucifer flew around holding him by his hair, which I'm sure was unpleasant. You know? Yes, unpleasant. But nobody killed him. Nobody beat him. Nobody did the horrible things that he does to Abel on a daily basis, right? And here he is cowering and crying and all of this stuff. And I'm looking at him and I'm like, abusers. There you go. Like just cowards to the one, you know? Um, and I do wonder, I highly doubt it, but I do wonder if this experience is going to change Kane's um, behavior with Abel, if it's going to change the way that he deals with Abel, or if is he going to be kinder to Abel? I have a feeling that's probably not going to be something that we see on the page, um, but I'd like to believe it. I'd, and at, at any rate, there is a certain amount of justice, of karma in Cain having this experience after what he does to Abel on a regular basis. Well, it's interesting because as you're talking, I'm thinking about how Cain and Abel, like dream and death, are they're archetypal beings. So in Hebrew, mm -hmm. Cain's name is Cain, which is, I think, a spear. Mm -hmm. And Abel's name is Avel, which is grief. And so oh. it's, if you, if this is in your language, it's like, we call our older son Spear and our younger one Grief. <laughs> Wonder what's going to happen. And <laughs> I, you know, it, yeah. I, and I've heard some people say, like, careful, if you call your dog Loki, don't be surprised if it turns out to be, you know, kind of a, mm -hmm. a trickster, because dogs yeah. sort of take on the attributes of their name. And mm -hmm. I was thinking, I, I was listening to one of Glenn's uh, Dream King podcasts. This was... Yes, Glenn McDormand, um, who is uh, one of the hosts of Hanging Out with the Dream King, which is a Neil Gaiman podcast, not just Sandman, but they are talking about Sandman now, uh, from Clay Temple Media. And you were on uh, his show recently. Everybody should go out and listen to that. It's uh, really, really fun. It was wonderful to listen. Oh, thank you. Well, I couldn't bring myself to listen to my episode. Oh, I, I know it's really hard. Yeah. I, I'm going to. I just sometimes it feels like a lot to listen to your voice because if, if you say something stupid, yeah. uh, there's no taking it back now. But so I listened to the following episode, um, uh -huh. which was yeah. uh, I think the title was something like uh, October's Turn in the Chair. And it was a deep mm -hmm. dive into this 
uh, story of Niels where there are these uh, mm-hmm. gathering of, of 12 in a grove of trees and they each have, you know, October, November, December. And uh, oh. and so they are both beings and they are also presumably the months of the year. And I think that mm-hmm. there is something lovely about that way that, you know, Neil plays with you know the anthropomorphization of of uh things and it 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 makes you think about that relationship between Mm -hmm. task and identity when you're the mother of a young child that very much informs your identity if you happen to be the month of october that would have a lot to do with you know your sense of self as well yeah All right. So one of the things that I wanted to talk about um, in in this story, um, which was really a moment that that hit me, was this confessional. Right. Um, This confessional moment for Dream when he is he seems like ordinarily like a keep yourself to yourself kind of guy, you know, Dream does Um, to have him stepping up in front of everybody and confessing his sins. you know, and and the thing is that there is there is a real value to that. I mean, part of that, like, it, you know, it goes to like the, the Catholic tradition of, you know, confession. It, it speaks to uh, therapy and the way that therapy works, that you you speak your issues, you address them consciously, you shine light on your shame. And the thing is, is that shame cannot survive empathy. Mm. It cannot survive empathy. If you speak your shame and someone gives you empathy, I get that from Brene Brown, highly recommend all of her I work. I just Fabulous bought stuff. her 10th anniversary book yesterday. Yes, it's fabulous. It's fabulous. The The Gifts of Imperfection, yes, that one. Yeah. I just bought that. Really, really great. She's got fabulous work. But one of the things that she says is that shame cannot survive empathy. And so by speaking your shame, by shining light on it, and somebody else showing empathy for whatever that is, that is a healing process. That is part of why confessional, you know, works so well. That is why confession works so well. So here we have you know, dream taking part in this, this very ancient ritual built of knowledge from human beings, um, that that to speak your shame, gives you a place to go to resolve it, you know. Um, And so like, I love this whole thing that he understands what he did wrong. He is stating what he did wrong, which by the way, for anybody who is in a position where you need to apologize, and many of us are in that position all the time, right? Because we make mistakes, we're human. Um, this is the process, right? You look at what you did, you acknowledge that you did it specifically, you state, yes, this is the thing that I did. You state why it was wrong. And then you go about your business promising that you will try to do better next time, right? You know, that you will learn from this experience and try not to repeat it. And so here we have dream in this highly, you know, formal ritualized space, you know, the leader of this, this space, this dreaming, this country, you know, um, can you imagine getting a genuine heartfelt understanding of what they did wrong apology and promise to fix it from a politician. I mean, good God. Right. Um, but there is something about this, which um, it, it serves on a number of levels. There's the the ritual nature of it, this sense of confessing. Um, there's also the statement, the clear statement of here is my goal. Here is why I'm doing this. This is the launch of the hero's journey. OK, so I have this probably inappropriate association right now. But as we're saying this at this particular point in history, Prince Andrew has just, uh, mm-hmm. there's a, a civil law case against him in, in an mm-hmm. American court. And he has just been stripped of all his military uh, honors mm-hmm. and the styling his royal highness. So, so far, he has been completely defending himself. Do you think it would have been better for him if a year ago, whenever he had that sit-down interview, he said, mm-hmm. I did something truly wrong and I can never atone for it. You know, would if he had atoned, yeah. um, would that have been better? Uh, yeah. I mean, I don't know if he's, he wouldn't have had the consequence. You don't atone and apologize to avoid consequence. Mm-hmm. Consequence is consequence is going to happen. You atone and apologize because you've done harm. And you want to acknowledge that you've done harm. 
so that the people that you have harmed can heal and move on. And then that's the purpose of it. So a genuine apology. And that's, you know, we go back to the grovel trope, right? The the benefit of the like the, the genuine grovel is one in which there is nothing like the, the person groveling has already lost what they're going to lose, right? They're not getting it back, but they apologize anyway because they know it's wrong. And here we are, you know, with with dream apologizing or uh, trying to explaining what he did wrong and why he's going to the people, he, the person who is harmed by this is not in his audience, but he is stating, I know what I did. Here's what I did. Here's how I'm going to fix it. And he's not expecting anything. He's still going to have to live with the consequences of what he did. Um, and you have to live with the consequences of what you did. It's done. The harm is done. Mm -hmm. Right. So I think that Andrew um, not apologizing, not acknowledging. Um, I don't know that it would have gotten him a, a lesser consequence. It shouldn't. But he should have done it anyway. Yes, well, he should have. That's how you grow as a human. That's how you grow as a human. You you screw up, you harm people, but then you make it right. You know. I think it would have helped his reputation some infinitesimal amount. Oh, I think it would. Yeah, I mean, it would have helped. Like we would probably respect him a, a tiny bit more. You know. Um, but the the thing is that the benefit that he would have to himself is within his soul. Right. Because like the thing yes. is, is that everybody carries around the bad shit they do with them. You carry that around inside of you. Um, so there is no such thing as no consequence. When you harm people, you carry that around inside of you. And eventually that bill is going to come due. It'll come due on the day when you go to have a banquet with your family and your sister sits your ass down and says, hey, right. And then the weight on your soul, if you did not consciously acknowledge it before, is there and you have to make it right. And the fact of the matter is that eventually we all have to make things right. Eventually we have to do battle with ourselves and what we've I'm done. I'm thinking that Prince Andrew's heartfelt confession is one of the books in Lucien's library. <laughs> yeah, never to be written, but perhaps, perhaps dreamed. Um, all right, so I think we are ready for Lucien's library. Heads up, everybody. This might be a little bit spoilery, but this is where we get deep into the background of everything. So go ahead and take us into Lucien's library. Uh, let's see. Well, one of the things that I touched on a little earlier is that this was not an issue that was originally part of uh, Neil's master plan. And mm -hmm. um, I, and again, this is before my time. So I, I delved into uh, High Bender's book too. And uh, so originally, Neil was just wanting to go ahead and have this issue be filled with the content that is now going to be in the following issue. But Karen mm -hmm. said, you have to slow down because there's a big uh, hierarchy of hell takeover situation going on in another book called The Demon, mm -hmm. written by um, another British author, Alan Grant. And Neil was initially giving some pushback. He thought that uh, this mm -hmm. was silly and, you know, comic book continuity was not his uh, first religion. And yeah. uh, I think he, <laughs> you know, kind of ticked Karen off a bit and you mm -hmm. know, he didn't want to do what he was thinking of as filler issues and she pushed back against his pushback and he mm -hmm. you know apologized and went ahead and wrote this uh this you know I think really wonderful uh issue that enhances rather mm -hmm. than detracts from the you know, the, the saga overall. And it reminded yeah. me that Donald Moss has written a mm -hmm. bunch of books about writing and writing the bestseller. Um, and he has a category he calls scenes, summaries, and postcards. And I always mm -hmm. thought this was really interesting. So to him, uh, a scene is obviously, you know, unified in action, usually one location. A summary mm -hmm. is how you cover a lot of time quickly. And uh, mm -hmm. you kind of conflate a bunch of things and make the time pass. And a postcard is a moment in which nothing much happens that moves the plot forward, but you're staying still and doing a deep dive into the characters' thoughts, mm -hmm. emotions, and reflections on their situation. And so mm -hmm. in a book like All the Light We Cannot See, there are a lot of... Uh, prose postcards, moments where the plot isn't chuntering along, but we're taking a deep mm -hmm. dive into the situation. And 
it can be easy to think of those as moments in which nothing happens. And I think that it, it is maybe more of a hallmark of literary fiction or psychological mm-hmm. fiction. Um, you also get a lot of it in a certain kind of romance. They're often deeply erotic and they don't have a lot of external mm-hmm. conflict. And you get these deep dives into the character's neuroses. It is one of my favorite flavors of I just love that deep dive into yeah. someone's thinking and reflection about mm-hmm. their situation. Um, obviously, it can be overdone, but I think it is intrinsically mm-hmm. interesting. And that's, to me, a lot of why uh, this this episode works. Yeah, I mean, this episode, like I said, like, I'm very much of the, you know, tell your story walking, you know, kind of writer. Like, I am like, <laughs> I, when people stop to sit and smell a flower and think, I'm like, oh, my God, the sitting and thinking, I have no patience for it. Now, that's me as a reader. I just have no patience. Like, I get it. Um, but that said, like, in this moment... There is stuff is happening like we are taking this is the deep breath that leads us into this space and understanding the consequences and the stakes and all of these things. We get this ritual confessional. We get this visitation, this goodbye. This issue actually is basically showing us the value of ritual. There's the ritual visitations with all the people that matter. There is the goodbye. There is the preparation for the journey. There is the reason for the journey, stating what it means, letting us know what the stakes are. There are a lot of things happening here that are essentially ritualistic in nature. And there is a reason why ritual matters to people. And having that as part of your story, I think a moment to breathe you know, when you're moving through, it is telling your story walking. I don't feel like this is a filler issue. I think that there are things happening. It's just that we have this internal struggle for dream and we are telling that internal story struggle for him as he is moving through all of this stuff, which if you know dream, I think is all stuff he would rather not be doing. Yes. But he's choosing to do it. There is an internal conflict um, at play there. And I say, that's a story. Yeah, I agree. I agree. Um, So, well, now the other thing I wanted to mention is Alcino and Mazakin, who are two of the demons. Uh, So uh, um, Alcino, I think I'm pronouncing his name right. He Mm -hmm. is... um, he is one of, I think, Dante's Inferno demons. Yeah, I was so quick mm-hmm. in my notes that I didn't write down. I'm like, surely I'll remember this. But I, yeah, I'm pretty sure. He's, <laughs> I can't remember which part of Dante's. You can look him up, but he's one of yeah. whatever circle he is. Mazakin, who I think comes out of the Arabic uh, mm-hmm. legends. Uh, I loved her so much. So I was very attached to Mazakin. And uh, if uh-huh. you read her... Uh, dialogue. It all makes sense. Yeah, Mazakin is the one with She's the, the half, half of the face. face that's yes. Off. Right. So mm-hmm. you know, hers like eat her face off. You know, it's it's all uh-huh. if you read it phonetically, it all does make sense. So long, long time ago, there was a party. Oh God, whose house was it at? I'm, um, I'm having a moment, but I remember that I went with Shelley, and Shelley mm-hmm. was a fairy. I think maybe she was Noala. I can't remember. I think she was Nuala, um, who will meet, mm-hmm. or maybe she was somebody else entirely. Shelley always has these incredible, you know, obscure and esoteric references. So I probably am missing the boat by a lot. Now, who is Shelley? Oh, sorry. Yes. Shelley Bond, who became, uh, she was Shelley Roberg then, became Shelley Bond when she married Philip Bond. She uh, was the assistant editor uh, who came after Lisa Offenanger, who came after mm-hmm. me. I think that's right. Okay. Um, and uh, so th- there's a whole, but anyway, she's a wonderful editor. She stayed with Vertigo for ages. We've worked together in lots of different ways and we remain friends. But at this point we were, you know, young and going to a Halloween party and I decided to dress as Mazakin. And so I just uh, d- did makeup. So it looked like half of my face was a bloody mess. Like I couldn't quite do oh the skull God. showing through, but it yeah. really looked... Mm-hmm. Uh, there's a picture somewhere. It looks pretty bad. Um, <laughs> and I remember that, you know, as we were walking to the party, people were like, oh, God, what happened to her? You know, like I've just been <laughs> beaten up. She she is. I think there was one of those, you know, Sandman Twitter things like, who's your favorite non-endless character? Yeah. And I just always like there was that little romantic thing between mm-hmm. Mazakin and Lucifer that I was just really there for. Oh, I like it. I like it. Um, You also have a little bit here on Hobbes 
toast. You know, Dream and Hob have this lovely bottle of wine together. And Dream is like, we're not due to meet for 96 years, but I might be a little late. Which I adore. Yes, yes, or or never, you know. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, I love that. And I read in the notes that that toast was inspired in its rhythm by Hope Merlee's book, Lud in the Mist. Mm-hmm. Um, but I'm also just having this random thought, like, you know, these days with weed being legal, it'd be, you know, if Hob was in another incarnation, like, ah, you know, the whatever the skunk's misery road weed mm-hmm. that exists only in, you know, one garden plot in, you know, Fiddler's Green. Yes, the weed sommelier is a thing, right? You know yes. that shit's happening. You know there are people out there who just know all the strains and what's good and what's not. And as we legalize, you know, this stuff, that's going to be really interesting as the fancy weed comes out. All right, let's move on. Elisa, what is your favorite page? Oh, my God. Okay, I think Lucien and Matthew in the library. Um, mm-hmm. I love it. You know, there used to be a program called Upstairs, Downstairs. Uh, which uh, Faye Weldon, the writer, wrote some of. And mm-hmm. it, it, like Downton Abbey, you would have the aristocrats and you would also have the servants. And I have always mm-hmm. been a sucker for servant stories. You get me below stairs. I am just there yeah. for it. And I just mm-hmm. love the whole Matthew, you know, everyone who is so formal and Victorian. And then you got Matthew the Raven. And he's, you know, <laughs> I was doing, what is it, Roger Corman from... I was doing yeah. a, a Peter Laurie from a, a, a Corman Roger movie. Corman movie, yes. <laughs> so I I really love that. Um, I think mm-hmm. that the lowbrow raven is is truly something I will Very always fun. be there and for. really nice to to match him up with with Lucien. They and are, if you you know, I mean, and he, I mean, if you end up doing something about Swamp Thing, I I have to mm-hmm. at least visit to talk about Matt Cable. Yes. Uh, so, yes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, oh, absolutely. What about you? What is your favorite page? Um, you know, once again, I have to say this is very similar to, I think it was uh, 24 hours when we had Dream traveling through other people's dreams, you know, and there's something about these pages and the way that they are drawn. And again, like, you know, talking about that beautiful harmony between the panels and that that kineticism of story as it moves through the page. Um, I, I nearly I love picked that up page. One. It you know what there are so many good pages in here that it's really really hard to pick a favorite. I have to say like I struggled for a little while like going back and forth between all the different pages, but it was just there's so many beautiful ones. But this was the one that when I just like what I do when I can't decide what my favorite page is is I just flip through it really really quickly and the one where my heart goes that's the one that I call as my favorite page. And so that's what happened with this. Um, What about your favorite part of the story? Oh, I I think I again I love the Hebrew Bible Old Testament bit where we get, you know, Cain being all Victoria and my right trusty, you know, servant or whatever, mm-hmm. reading the the formal. And then we get Lucifer, you know, saying like skip the fancy stuff and just get to the Yeah. The, get to the point. Mister. Get to the point. Yeah. I think that that toggling back and forth between humor and darkness between you know uh you know Kane is usually so arrogant and stuffy and and uh you know so to see him humiliated a little there there was a little schadenfreudish fun yeah. at that point and then it mm-hmm. becomes something far darker so I I liked that a lot how, how about you mm-hmm. Um, I love when dream pops in to say goodbye to Hob like this was something that had had we not had that, you know, in this issue, had we not had that in this moment, like we wouldn't have missed it, you know, and nobody would have been thinking, well, what about Hab? Like, you know, but the fact that he takes the time to say, we have a date in 96 years and I might not show up. So let's take a moment to share this rare bottle of wine and hang out and be buds. Um, and I love, and especially because when you think back to, um, I believe it was Men of Good Fortune, right? Was the Hobgadling one where he's so, Dream is so offended by the thought that he might just have needed a friend. 
And then this feels like a kind of a lovely coda to that, where he has acknowledged, of course, the friendship as he did in, in Men of Good Fortune. But now he is actually um, needing that friendship. He needs to go to his friend. He has confessed his sins. He's going to like right a wrong that he has done carrying this weight. And now he has this moment of respite with a friend where he can just sit and have a bottle of wine and let that friend know that he matters. You know, like there was something about that that I felt was was not just a sweet moment, but also like a movement in dreams, character development and his development as a, you know, we can't call them people. But again, all characters that are sentient and have wants and desires are coded as human. Um, and it does bring in a, a level of of love and humanity into Dream's character that we wouldn't have missed in this episode, in this issue, but which lands really nicely. I really like it. Yeah, it... Um... It, it makes everything feel so much more important and real as we take ourselves into the trip to hell. All right. If you enjoyed this conversation and would like to join in, connect with the show on Twitter, follow at Chipperish and use the hashtag Endless Podcast or send your comments or questions to Endless at Chipperish.com. This episode of Endless was brought to you by the Chipperish Media producers who support us on Patreon at the power producer level. These people are the reason why Endless is coming to you free and ad-free right now. So thank you to Abby, Alice, Christina, Erica, Jane, Kevin, Kristen, Michael, Rose, Sarah, Shelley, and Stephania. And this week's special message for our power producers, sometimes we can choose the path we follow. Sometimes our choices are made for us. And sometimes we have no choice at all. To find out how you too can support Chipperish Media, visit patreon.com slash chipperish. Other ways to show your support, write a great review on Apple Podcasts, tell your friends about the show, or take the envoy out and destroy him. This episode of Endless was edited by Chipperish content editor Jack Cram. Jack, our right trusty and well-beloved cousin. We will be back next time with Season of Mist, Chapter 2, Issue 23 of the Sandman series. Until then, I trust I shall see you all again. Thank you. You may go. Bye.